Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we hear a few stories about learning how to fly as a woman in the 1920s, and what it was like to start an airport back then, and what went into running it. Well, my dad had a, a strip of slod, and he said, now, that's, that could be a runway. He said, you could, that's east and west. He said, they could just come in there and land. And so they, they started to do that. Some of the fellows from right field would be flying around, and they'd stop in for gas. He said, no, the gas that we have, he said, I, I use in the tractors, but he says that's the same thing we use in the light plane when we fly. And he said, I've got tractor gas that they can voucher for. Get he said I can let you have it, and you can voucher. We can voucher for it with the you know voucher the army for it. And he said they can stop in whenever they want to. Now that had promised when he rented the airport to the city, that he would charge a dollar a year as rent. But he said, well, keep, it this, keep the snow removed, and we'll keep it moved so that it'll be okay to land there any time. So that was an agreement that was made with the city and Dad. And then the city sent grass seed. We <clears throat> used some of the grass seed, but whether they had said so much, so the city park took the rest of the grass seed and they used it. Now, this, there were no rules or things. You know, you, people were just, there was so much that was just done because there had never been an occasion to have it done before. And that's how the airport got started. The runway was 2,400 feet long and about 80 feet wide, and although this is small for today's standards, it's still a lot of work to maintain, hence the renting agreement with the city. Now, the Lansdowne Airport was named after Zachary Lansdowne, who commanded the Shenandoah, which was a U.S. Navy airship. And uh, Commander Lansdowne was from Greenville, and one of the first memories I had of anything flying in the air was when... Commander Lansdowne flew over his folks' house in Greenville, circled the house, encircled Greenville, the town. They circled in the Zeppelin, and then they would go on wherever their trip was. But he was in the Navy. That was a Navy plane. And that was really the first thing that you, that I remembered, the first airship or the first airplane that I remembered. And I was just a little kid, maybe three, four, five, something like that. Well, the airship would crash during a September storm in Ava, Ohio. After the crash on September 3rd, 1925, this Greenville Airport was dedicated in his name. The, the golden years of flight were from 1920 to 1930 or something like that. And uh, the airport was dedicated in 1928. So you see, it had been there several years before that. And that was in the family, you know. So 
Lansdowne Airport was dedicated before Columbus Municipal Airport or before Dayton Municipal Airport. So it's older than either one of those. But I just grew up with flying. I can remember my twin and I ran through the cornfields to get to the hangar to get over to the flying field. But the, the flying field was on a different road, you know. It was on the airport road, which goes to Jaysville. And I, that was when I was so young that it, it's hard for me sometimes to go back to all of that. Most of the airports had a lunchroom, <laughs> and I hated to go. So we didn't have any lunchroom. We just had pop. And, and, and um, uh, when we had students in the morning, I would make sandwiches, uh, egg and olive sandwiches and different things and put them in the refrigerator. <laughs> and for 15 cents, they could buy a sandwich for lunch if they had time to fly at noon at an appointment. So I did do that much, but I didn't. I, we didn't have any restaurant, and they could have a coke with that because they always drank cokes at the airport. Airports, they had parking area, but they didn't have any entertainment, and you just sat there and watched them fly. You know, that was the entertainment. So when the airport was still at an early age, flight training was arranged by appointment, where the flight instructor would come out to the airport and then the students would show up for their appointments. And, and some of them met their appointments and some of them didn't, you know. Well, we had an instructor there and there wasn't always a private student to take those appointments when they didn't make them. So uh, Dad said, uh, would it be all right? If uh, Lancher or one of my private students took that appointment if, when the CPT student didn't come. And they said, yes, yes, that would be all right. So I started doing that. If they didn't show up, I would take the appointment. And finally, they noticed that I was ready to solo. So the instructor said, if she's ready to solo, can she solo? And Dad said, well, sure, you've got to let her solo if she's ready to solo. And so that's how I got to solo. And then I I started having air work and, and more things. And then I, we had a big map all over the wall. And in my spare time, I would go to the, to the wall and figure out trips. I would make little trips not far from, you know, just small things. And... So that's how I got my cross-country in. And then when I got the cross-country in, there were vouchers that had to be sent to the government for our flying money, you know. So I flew the vouchers to, to Cincinnati and landed at Lincoln Airport, and they were taken into the veterans office in, in uh, Cincinnati. And from there, they went to Washington, and from there, they were paid. Then, you know, a check was sent. Now, all the training was done in J-3 Cumps. But the plane that I flew to Cincinnati, it was a, a high-wing monoplane, and it had a control wheel because I wore a skirt. It, women didn't wear slacks then. 
and I wore a skirt and I took the vouchers down to Cincinnati where I got a cab and took the cab into the veteran's office. And then I went to the stores and did a little bit of shopping if the weather was nice. And I came back because I had to be home before dark or John would be worried about me. And um, and I we only I only made those trips when the weather looked pretty good because we didn't have the kind of weather information that you get now. It was just that you you had to go out, stick your finger in the air, and figure which way the air was blowing and and whether the weather was fit to fly. It was so different. As you may have already guessed, women didn't usually fly during the 1920s and 30s, and our storyteller encountered some resistance from her family at first. Well, I was playing bridge one afternoon. My friend said, what did you do to your fingernails? And I said, well, nothing. They're just broken. And they said, well, how did you get them broken? And I said, I was propping the plane. And they said, you were what? And I said, Yes, I'm learning to fly, and I have to learn how to to start the plane by swinging the propeller. And they were so shocked. And my sisters never forgot that. But my sisters didn't want to learn to fly at that time. I was the only one. Now, I didn't like to cook, so I, I would go to the flying field, and if there was anything that had to be done over there, I could do that, you know, and I could type. So you washed the planes, you you did everything, and you gassed the planes, and you propped the planes. When I got in trouble, that's when they really found out that I was learning to fly because my fingernails were really shabby looking. I was used to wearing polish all the time, you know. But, you know, before you learn to fly, you go sit in a plane and you until you feel comfortable. And so you really start slowly and you really think about it before you start to fly, to start to take lessons. And you do because there are so many people that don't take flying seriously. It's a business that really does require a lot of thinking and a lot of planning and <laughs> I'll mention that, a lot of money. <laughs> and now I just can't believe how much an hour of flying costs. You know what it costs for the J-3 to fly it? If we had a J-3 that was strictly a club plane, and our the members that belonged to the club rented that plane for $3 an hour. Can you imagine? And that was with gas and including any mechanical work that had to be done. The plane was kept in flying order, you know. Our storyteller also received some discrimination from other pilots, which affected how she trained and where she learned to fly. Well, I used to fly down to South Dayton Airport and land. One of the instructors was playing around. They were, you know, just flying for fun and... uh, and doing things just a little bit crazy, you know, and having fun with it. And uh, I didn't like the way, the way it looked, so I 
just simply landed without making a circle or anything. I just got to the runway and landed and stayed off the runway until they got through playing around. And when he came down, he came over and he just bawled me out and said, don't you know how to fly? And he didn't know me. And he, he just really, you know, gave it to it. And I, I felt like crying, but I didn't. But they said, nice girls don't fly. They said, girls from nice families don't fly. And women don't wear slacks. Only the women that work in fields and do things like that. But I wore slacks, and I figured I was a lady. I knew I was. But flying wasn't anything for a woman, and they didn't approve it. But John's parents and his mother, especially, thought it was nice for a woman to fly. And I and mother had a sister, Aunt Sally, who lived to be a hundred and two, and Aunt Sally lived with mother and dad, and and uh, she would say, "Well, now what's Blanche doing now? And did you, where did she go? She was always interested in any cross country I might be doing, and so it, you tolerated that, but." you really weren't accepted as you should have been because women just didn't fly. I would go to the one end of the field that was down near the spring and taxi around and then practice things, you know, because I didn't want them to see me. And if I flew, I flew in the afternoon where nobody was there. You just got used to that. It's hard for women to fly uh, because of the weather, and it's almost a disgrace to get weathered in any place because your reputation is really on the line then. Weathered in means that you, your flight gets held down because you, the weather doesn't let you fly. The weather isn't good enough to fly. And being able to fly in many types of weather was a way of showing one's skill level when flying. And not being able to fly due to the weather was looked at as a lack of experience. Because they, oh, you got weathered in? And they laugh. So some women would take unnecessary risks to avoid being ridiculed. They absolutely were taking chances of getting their wings iced on the plane. They would rather take a chance at that then get weathered in because it was so detrimental to your reputation. And that mattered. It mattered a lot. Our storyteller eventually started to run the airport with the help of her husband, John, and being there all the time meant she saw some unusual things and some very famous people at times. We saw this plane flying around. It was just about dusk, and it was flying around, and the wings were so different that they were... Uh, not like regular biplane wings, you know. They were, one was uh, set on there just a little at an angle, and, and we saw this plane got flying around, and it landed, and they he was uh, uh, low on fuel. And the man who stepped out of the plane was Walter Beach, the founder of the Beechcraft Aircraft Company. He was staying all night, and he wanted to go to a hotel, and. 
that was before motel. And I said, are you sure? But he, we took him to the hotel. And he was dressed so beautifully. He had on a brown, a dark brown wool gabardine suit that was hand detailed at the lapels. And this was an expensive finish that you never saw in anything but a man's magazine or some, you know. And he was dressed like that, but he had been to New York to show his plane and to explain to them, try to sell it. So we we were very amazed at the looks of the plane, and that it, and it really did fly nicely. And he was a nice man, had a nice manner, and he was you know one of the first manufacturing uh, people that we had met. And that was only by accident he had to come in because of, because it was getting dark. But it was lucky that he knew where the field was. I think there were quite a few of the planes that came in that were like that. Flying, to me, was just a way that I could get away from everything. It's restful being up there, but you have to feel like you're at peace with the airplane. I could go flying for a while, and I was up there by myself and away from the crowd, and away from the business, and away from the kids. And I look down and have some thoughts of your own, you know. Blanche O'Brien is 98 years old, and even though the last time she flew solo in an airplane was in the 1960s, she's still involved in the aviation community by attending events and other club meetings. Blanche and her husband John met when she was learning how to fly. John was her flight instructor that really pushed her to solo for the first time. He remained a flight instructor even after they moved down to Florida, and John passed away in 1997. You can check out pictures of Blanche and Lansdowne Airport, as well as more information about these stories by going to the article at thelogbookpodcast.com. One quick update, I was recently featured as a guest on the Airplane Geeks podcast number 364. We talked about why I started the logbook, how I arrange interviews, and other general behind-the-scenes information about this podcast. If you want to check out their podcast and also learn more about me and the logbook, head over to airplanegeeks.com. If you're listening to this episode because of my appearance on the Airplane Geeks podcast, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. This episode was supported directly by your donations. If you enjoy the show, you can support its production by becoming a patron. Through Patreon, you set a donation level that is given every time a new episode is released, and you can always set a monthly limit so you don't go over your budget. Depending on the amount donated, you are granted access to different rewards that are as simple as hearing a sneak preview to the next episode, all the way up to exclusive content that didn't make it into the show. Any amount is helpful, and the more that's donated, the more the show can improve. Head over to our website, thelogbookpodcast.com, and click on the Patreon banner at the side of the page to start supporting. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of The Logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in The Logbook. <laughs>